So, Pat, before we get started, I'm going to just set up, you know, me, John Holmberg. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff, but I talked about him on your podcast. He's the king of radio here in Phoenix. He's not your normal radio guy, just like you, not a normal radio guy. Um, Scott Long, who you know, and um, we have a couple people listening in who are also uh, might chime in at some point, but I don't, that's definitely the main point. So, the Caliendo cast. With Frank Caliendo, John Holmberg, Scott Long, and the rest of the Caliendo crew. It's the most important podcast in the history of Western civilization. Well, it's an honor to be with you, gentlemen. Scott, great to see you again. I've heard great things about you, sir. I heard your impressions are next level. Is this the guy? Yeah, yeah. Are you talking about me? Yeah, yeah. talking about Scott Long again. <laughs> he, he's, Pat's pointing to screens. His own yeah, screen is pointing. Guy, this guy over here. I saw the, the finger went the wrong way. I'm like, he's doing it wrong? I didn't know. Scott, nail it. Drop a bomb. I'm not, uh, this is my second time. No, this is my first time on Zoom, I think. Yeah, you'd said this was uh, the first. Well, yeah. you, you thought it was first Zoom. It well, looks like it really looks like your first Zoom. I'm going to tell you that much. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, for, we live on the area. I have nowhere to put my phone right now. That's what I'm learning. I'm I'm trying to figure out where we will go over here. It's the entire video looks like he's trying to physically outrun the coronavirus. That's just not <laughs> going to stop moving. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out what kind of movie, but it's a pandemic chase movie. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, like it was, he's, he's on the run from something horrible we can't see as the audience, but we're afraid to. It's moving with you. Starring Pat McAfee. <laughs> 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 it's, I don't know. This is what I told you. No matter what Pat does, it's entertaining. Yeah, it's yeah, I think we could do 45 minutes of him walking around looking for a spot to sit. Oh no, I'm trying to find where I'm trying to set the phone up, but it's bingo! There it is. Was that yeah, next yeah. to the Febreze? Is that what you had it next to? <laughs> We're in the bathroom. Oh man. That's hilarious. Is that, that's not, I can't see, is that, oh, I thought that was you. That's Triple H, all right. Yeah, uh, I have a gift from there and then a couple books here that I read, obviously. It's an honor to be with you, gentlemen. Absolute honor. Can you hear me good? Yeah, we can hear you well. Uh, with the Zoom, it's got a little bit of the, you know, delay issues and stuff like that, so we just try and pause and listen. This is your, this is your deal. I've been on your show a bunch of times or a few times, and uh, you just let me go, and um, I appreciate that. Uh, so we're going to. I want to I want to dive in a little bit at the beginning because I don't know how much everybody knows about you. Um, so you you grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Yes, sir. Uh, Plum, which is the East Hills of Pittsburgh, old Plum Borough. That's uh, where I'm from. Rust Belt guy. Let's go, Steelers. You got the uh, glove down there, about to make a one handed catch there, like uh, like uh, Lynn Swan back in the day. <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. So you, I'm just giving a little bit of uh, background, I, although it's, uh, quite a few of our listeners come over from me being on your show, but that's, that's, uh, we get that every once or quite a bit. So um, in terms of, you grew up in Pennsylvania and then you played football as a kid. I read about you didn't play any, you, your dad didn't want you playing any baseball. 
Yeah, my dad hated baseball. He thought it was very boring, so I never played baseball. I never played football either. I played soccer. I was a big-time soccer player. Every weekend on the road, my dad and I used to log miles in the old Subi Impreza back in the day whenever we would just roll around state to state for soccer tournaments. I was big bone, so I was always tired. You know, I couldn't run as much as the little guys. Uh, I didn't pick up football until my junior year of high school, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, I kind of fell into something. I got very, very lucky that I had an absolute cannon attached to my right hip. Now, you're uh, uh, in the NFL, you're a punter, but in the in college, you were a place kicker. Yeah, I did both in college at West Virginia. So I kicked and punted, but the punting style that we did, um, they used to call it rugby style, but now that I'm learning more, it's an Aussie football style where you take the snap and then you would sprint to your right and then you just basically try to roll it, just be an athlete because I didn't, I didn't have enough flexibility or the skill to be a punter. Our punter was just not doing great, so they got benched. And he was like, our coach, Rich Rodriguez, by the way, who is a uh, intense individual to say the least, he looked at me and he said, uh, you can figure out how to fucking punt, can't you? I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I can figure it out. He was like, uh, we, we, we fucking need something. So it was just like uh, I would just roll to the right and try to roll it as far as I possibly could. But I did both in college. But the expectation would be that I was going to kick in the NFL. And Bill Polian drafted me to punt. And uh, on draft day, just like Rich Rod said, he said, we think you're athletic enough to figure out how to NFL-style NFL punt, which is like a two-step straight-ahead punt, which is very different than what I had been doing in college. And luckily, Bill Polian is a smart man because uh, I didn't know I was be able to figure it out in, uh, <laughs> I guess, like three years later. You said a right hip. But most people think about when you kick, they're thinking of your leg, your – is that where the power is generated? Is a hip? Well, it's connected to the right hip. You see, it's like I, I, the bones. You see, the hip bones connected to the, <laughs> to the thigh bone. Yeah, and then the thigh bone is the the shin bone. I, I, they have scientific names, but that entire thing on my right side is a fucking rocket launch. On the other <laughs> side, though, just not worth a damn over here, Frank. The left Napoleon. side. Napoleon. Yeah, it's just even when I played soccer, I. I I played a pretty high level. I played overseas and stuff. I did a lot of really – I had more schools looking at me for soccer than I did for football. I was only a one-legged soccer player, though. Everybody knew, look out if it's on that right leg. That left leg sucks, though. Just let him do whatever he needs to do over there. <laughs> hey, uh, Pat, you have to share your origin story of how you got a college scholarship because I believe it's the greatest story ever on how this happened. This is, this is an amazing story. Pat's like a high school kicker that no one's paying attention to. Tell the story. I love this story. Oh, I appreciate that. So uh, just like I just said, I had a lot of soccer uh, colleges looking at me for soccer, right? No full-blown scholarship offers, but I would get like five to ten letters from schools for soccer daily, right? Everybody assumed what? I was going to be a for example, what schools? You're, you're talking big Virginia, time yeah, you're talking about Virginia, Penn, like big schools, Virginia, North Carolina, Penn State. Uh, I think there was Dayton Flyers were sending me like one a day at a point. I mean, there was a lot of, of soccer schools that were looking at me because I did ODP, which is Olympic Development Program in soccer and everything. And I mean, that was really going to be my path. And then I won the punt pass and kick my sophomore year of high school just because my mom made me go do it because <laughs> Pittsburgh's a big football place. And we always played backyard football, street football. And I was always all-time quarterback, right? So because I could always throw the ball really far, right? We go telephone pole to telephone pole in my neighborhood. 
I was one of the only kids that could go telephone pole to telephone pole with a throw. So I was all time quarterback since I was, uh, so my mom heard of this punt passing kick and she knew we could potentially get tickets to a Steeler game if I win. Right. So my dad, <laughs> my dad, massive Steeler fan, the age of 14 or 15, whichever the last age group is like the last time my mom was like, well, why don't you go do punt passing kick or whatever? Like, you might as well. So she drove me over to this tiny little school to do the local uh, pump pass and kick thing. And I just, I mean, slaughtered. I mean, I, I, I was just, <laughs> I, I crow hopped into it and I threw a ball. And it, it's a tape, they, they lay out a tape measure straight ahead. And forever, however yeah. far off the tape measure you are, they measure that back and then you get your total, right? So the goal is to hit the tape measure. That's what the pump pass and kick thing. My throw, like hit the tape measure. My punt, like hit the tape measure. And then my <laughs> kick was just like a little bit off. And you got these little local kids who, I don't think they play football or soccer. They're like standing there looking like, did a 40-year-old man just fucking try it? Like I, I slaughtered this local one, right? So then I go to the Pittsburgh one, the Steelers one, where you go to the game. My dad, my brother, and I went to a game. It was really cool. It was an awesome moment. I win that one. And then out, out of all the teams, if you're in the top four in the entire NFL, if your score is the measurements, you go to the national championship. So I went to the national championship, which was another Pittsburgh Steeler game. It just so happened to be a playoff game. So my dad, my brother, and I go to another Steeler game. I win the national championship. I think I still have the record, by the way, because the same thing happened. Like the ball just landed on the – it was just bing, bang, boom. Like it, it was unbelievably lucky. Unbelievable. Are, are people at that point going, this guy's the next Andy Reid? Andy Reid, Peyton Manning. I mean, there's a lot of people that have gone through the pump pass and kick. And I'm pretty sure that at the time, whenever I was at. I I don't want to interrupt your story. I won the punt pass and kick for my local, but then I I didn't get any farther. Uh, Please go ahead. I I just need to get that out. Hey, hey, you're you're still a champion. Thank you. (laughs) Not on this show. (laughs) So I win that one pretty large. Um, and they put you on TV in the third quarter, right? And then Pittsburgh football is king, and the Steelers are playing the Titans. I mean, it was so they put you on TV, they announce you as a winner, and I throw the shocker, right, on on <laughs> television, right? Because I'm just an absolute idiot of a child, right? And I'm an absolute idiot. So obviously, in my school, all of a sudden that becomes a pretty large or in the area where I'm from, I, I became a pretty noted people either hated me or loved me, right? It was one of the other. Were you aware of the soccer or had you performed the soccer in the past? Uh, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure how many reps I had at it, but our soccer team, <laughs> our soccer team almost got like uh, suspended from yeah. our school because every yearbook photo that would happen, there'd be like five guys just like slipping the shocker in on like people's shoulders and like they'd have their hands over each other. It was like our thing. It was like literally a thing of our soccer team versus our school district because they got so mad at us for doing it, right? So, so the school district, like, could you at least, could maybe just do gang symbols or something? Could you do gang signs instead? Yeah, exactly. They were not happy with that. So whenever I get in the, I think it was the divisional round of the AFC playoffs, and I throw the shocker there, I would love to have seen the reaction of our school district, right? Like the, the, the teachers, the, the assistant principals that hate our soccer team or whatever. But I was a legend amongst my friends, which was all I really cared about. <laughs> so I go um, I go back, and then they obviously asked me to kick for the football team the next year, my junior year. And I didn't go to practice. I would just show up on Fridays, like literally as the games, like as fans were walking in sometimes, I would be walking in like in my – shoulder pads because I did soccer all week. And then Friday nights I would do the football game. 
And our school wasn't like a great football school. We, we were not that great. I mean, good, but not that great. Our soccer team was much better. So I started having some success. Uh, I started kicking ball. People used to come to games to watch me like hit kickoffs through the uprights out of the back of the end zone. Like it was like <laughs> something to do. Like, hey, our football team might not be good, but we got this kid with a fucking donkey leg that kicks up here. Like it became like a like a sideshow almost, right? So you're kind of happy Gilmore. You're kind yeah. like <laughs> golf ball whacker guy. On Friday nights, we have the football kicking kid. Yeah. He's a pain in the ass. He threw a shocker on national television, but he can kick the hell out of a football. Uh, <laughs> so that happened. Kent State offers me a scholarship. So in my conversation with my dad, I had a lot of schools looking at me for soccer, and I had a scholarship to Kent State. And I knew as a kicker or punter in the NFL, you don't have to go to a big school. You just have to basically go to a school and be okay. Vinatieri went to South Dakota State. I mean, there's a lot of those stories where you go to a small school, you don't go to a big school. <laughs> So my dad and I had a real business conversation. Like, do I want to run seven miles and kick a ball and make money? Or do I want to run three steps and kick a ball and make money later on down the road? And we both agreed, like, probably kicking a ball would be good. Like, the first time I actually kicked, like, a field goal, I kicked a 60-yard field goal. And I'd been at camps where Jeff Reed was there for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I was kicking, like, just as far as Jeff Reed in high school. So it was like we, we knew that the chance was – pretty big but mostly because of your donkey cannon <laughs> yeah because i didn't play video games growing up i hated video games i didn't watch any disney movies like i still had one my my fiance says i don't have enough feelings because i never watched any disney movies growing up because i had such bad add <laughs> but i would just kick a soccer ball against the side of my house for like hours at a time just like hours at a time just thud 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 glass break thud thud like that was that was what I did, you know. So, so did, my you, leg did you like soccer, though, or did you just play soccer? Because there's so many – I talked to people like like uh, Andre Agassi one time. I asked him about playing tennis, not soccer. But I asked him about uh, tennis, and he goes, yeah, I play it. I just It's just kind of my life. It's not what I really enjoyed. I think that becomes – that happens to professionals when it becomes a business and you start getting negotiated on and critiqued and things like that. So I think as a kid, I liked soccer. If it was to become my profession, I would assume I would have hated it. But it, like, I don't, I, I was always at the point where I enjoyed it because to be honest, anytime I had the ball, I had a chance to score because my leg was that big. And I also had a chance to miss a net by 75 yards. I mean, that was like, uh, there was the, <laughs> but people you know want I mean? to see that, right? That's, that's yeah. part of the fun. It's the, it's the all or nothing. It's the home run of, Soccer. It's a. I mean, I. I guess I didn't even realize that. I, I read a little bit about you playing soccer, and I've known about you for quite a while. But in terms of, I guess I didn't realize soccer was that prevalent in your life. I went and played uh, with the Columbus Crew for like four days during the lockout during their training camp, whenever that was going on. Because I was like, you know what, this I've never got a chance to do. It. I played a, a little bit at West Virginia in the spring as well. So when that lockout happened, I was like, you know what. I don't know if I ever could have been a professional soccer player, but now's a good time to figure it out. I mean, I'm on a radar gun kicking a soccer ball 124 miles an hour. I mean, it was just like, I have a really strong leg because all I did was kick a soccer ball against the wall. Now, granted, that probably killed my knees long-term, right? Like in the long-term, it was like live by the cannon, die by the cannon type thing. But it was it was a real thing. So when I went and played with the MLS with the Columbus crew, I was okay day one and day two, but boy, I couldn't get out of bed day three and day four. I was too fat and out of shape for soccer. So, but soccer has always been like my main love. So when I went over to football and I wasn't going to practices and I wasn't going to a lot of these kicking camps because I didn't know anything about them, not a lot of people knew about me. So 
Kent State was the only school that offered me. And my dad and I, we made a business decision with my mom and brother. It was like, all right, let's go and do this. Even though not a lot of schools have been interested in me, more schools are interested in me and for soccer and all this stuff. Let's go and see if I can do this kicking thing because this seems like a reality. Yeah. By the way, as a lifelong NFL fan and football fan, what's the easiest job on earth? Being a punter or a kicker. I mean, like, let's let's go try to get that job, right? <laughs> so until about a month before signing day, I was going to go to Kent State. And I got a call from a 954 number, which is Fort Lauderdale. I still know the number off by heart to this date because it was a wild, wild day. And I don't know if it's still his phone number or not. It was a guy named Mike McCabe from one-on-one kicking. He called me in the middle of my chemistry class while I was in school. So I have this little terrible phone, the one I had the snake on it and uh, T9 texting. Uh, it was a good phone for me. I used to be able to do a lot of work in class, right, on the side because my T9 was fucking quick. I mean, it was, it was good, my T9. It started vibrating. It was a random number. So I asked my chemistry teacher, Mr. Jasper, I go, uh, is there any way I can answer this? I don't know who this is. Like, and he was like, yeah, just go in the closet. They're like, you shouldn't be answering phone calls in my class. I'm like, well, I, I, this could be something. We don't know. But right? the closet's and, okay. <laughs> yeah, just go in the closet. So I answer, and it's this guy. The phone booth. Yeah, he answers. He, he runs kicking camps in South Florida. And he was putting on a kicking contest, kicking competition for the guys that he trains. He trained a group of guys basically down there, kickers and punters, like through their entire high school careers. They would kick with him and stuff like that. They go to local high schools. And he wanted to put on a contest, a competition down there in Miami at the University uh, of Miami. I forget what it was called down there. Legendary Stadium. Uh, I forget it. But I said, I want to come. Right. So he was calling anybody who got scholarship offers outside of Florida to come kick against his guys where there's going to be a lot of college coaches at. And he wanted to put on this entire contest. Basically. And I never heard of such a thing. And I wanted to go kick against other kids because I had no idea, to be honest with you, what other kids look like that were good kickers. Right. I, I knew anywhere I went, there was nobody doing what I was doing, but I had no idea what was going on in Florida. I had no idea what could have possibly happened. And the guy was like, all right, we'll email you the information. And it was like a week out. Right. So I get this information. To do the camp, to fly down there and pay for the hotel, it was like 1500 bucks or something like that, right? My dad, truck driver, mom's secretary, I already had a scholarship on deck. I was supposed to sign uh, a month later to go to Kent State. I, I approached my dad, and I'm like, uh, hey, there's this kicking camp down in Miami. Uh, I was wondering if I could go to kick against other kids. Uh, it's $1,500 over. My dad basically told me to go fuck myself, right? He's like, I'm not, we're not paying $1,500 for you, but to go to Miami, oh, you're going to go on vacation to Miami uh, and you're just going to kick against kids. You're not going to do that, right? He, he didn't see the benefit. We already have a scholarship at Kent State. He had already befriended a lot of the coaches at Kent State. I mean, it felt like everything in this world was lining up for that. And, and I appreciated that, but this was back whenever the World Series of Poker was massive. Chris Moneymaker, some stooge from the middle of the country went over to Las Vegas. He paid $10,000 to get into a tournament. He won $7 million, right? So every middle-class town in America was having poker nights at every single house. Our school would have poker games in different kids' garages, different kids' kitchens, literally every single night of the week at this point because that's how big the World Series of Poker was, at least in my part of the world in Pittsburgh. And I was a pretty good card player. Like I was, a, I was a pretty good card. I got very lucky on a very regular occasion. I knew that. I enjoyed that. A lot of people hated playing against me because I'm waiting it out on the river. I think my card's coming. My card is coming. Like That's how I would play. So I heard about this game that was a little bit bigger. It was in the basement of an Italian restaurant. I borrowed $100 from one of my rich friends. I went in there, and I came out at about 4 a.m., uh, out of that room with 1400 bucks, And uh, I asked my dad for $100. 
I got the tickets, the hotel, and the camp. I go down to this camp. Um, they didn't let me kick on Friday. I didn't really kick on Saturday. So the two days were kind of a waste. I called my dad and told him, like, they haven't really let me kick. He goes, oh, no shit. Yeah, you're, they use, like, my dad, like, ultimate pessimist, right? It's like, yeah, they just took your money from you. Like, no shit you didn't get through, right? So Sunday, I had to leave from the stadium at, like, maybe 1030 or something. My flight was at noon from Miami to Charlotte. And then I had a layover from Charlotte back to Pittsburgh or something like that. So this thing starts off at like nine o'clock or something. And they have this long list of kickers. It's the final day. It's the final contest or whatever. And I was like, hey, is there any way I can go first? Because I have to get out of here uh, to get on my flight or I'm going to miss my flight home or whatever. He's like, you got it. So I go first. And the way the camp went, um, Louis Aguiar, who punted for the Chiefs for a long time, was holding. There was a long snapper that was there. I didn't know who the long snapper was. I, I should remember who that person was for the story because he was probably in the NFL. It was a big-time long, long snapper, big-time holder. You kick a 20-yard field goal from the left hash, then a 25-yarder from the right hash, then a 30 from the left, 35 from the right, blah, blah, blah. And then you go from a 50-yarder in the middle. And then if you hit the 50-yarder, you back up five yards. If you hit the 55-yarder from the middle, you back up five yards. If you miss, you don't back up. So I made every single kick, hit from 50, backed up to 55, hit from 55, backed up to 60, hit from 60, backed up to 65, hit from 60, then missed 70 wide right. Okay. Oh and Louis, me and Louis Aguiar had no conversation in between these kicks, by the way. I was just like, I was just kicking. I think Louie was trying to like leave me be or whatever. I didn't know anybody at this point. So I'm just bombing balls in the middle of this stadium. Like, and everybody, I could feel everybody like, kind of stopping and looking. Right? Are you, like, are you pissed at that point because you had wasted two days and you're mm -hmm. taking it out at that point? Or it's just like, ah, eh, I'm doing it before I go. I, I don't really give a shit, whatever. I think hindsight, I had to watch a lot of those kids kick the first two days. And I, I think I, I don't know, as like a 17 year old, and a, a pretty competitive human, I was like, God, ah, these kids stink, right? Like that, that's literally what I was, that's what I was, that's what I was thinking because they weren't letting me kick. And I thought I was better than the kids that were kicking. And there was a lot of college kids around. So I was pretty pissed off, right? As a super competitive human. I think I was mad about that more so than the money that I won in the basement of the restaurant being wasted, right? Like I, I kind of view that as house money at this point. I'm just happy to be in Miami. I'm catching a little bit of a tan. I mean, it's, I'm using my brother's not fake ID at this point. I got a beer the night before at the hotel bar. I mean, I'm having, I mean, things are going good. <laughs> and you're about to be Roy Hobbs is what you're <laughs> Yeah, so I hit him yeah, off. Yeah, to move. And then you, I had when you, when you were down there, did you worry like the first two days where you're like, do I, did you go down there knowing you were probably one of the best ones or were you just completely oblivious? I had no idea what other kids look like in my age. Like I had no clue. I would watch, we'd play other high school teams and one or two of them had a good kicker. Somebody that was good, a good kicker. And I would watch them in warmups to kind of see what a 17 year old is supposed to right. kick like. Cause you have no, I don't you know. Measured I against wasn't... nothing. Yeah, exactly. I had no way because I wouldn't go to kicking camps. I would just me and my dad would kick on our high school field at night. It would just be me and my dad. So it was like I have no idea what anybody else is supposed to look like. And I didn't watch college football much because in Pittsburgh, it's like, I mean, University of Pittsburgh is obviously something that they love. But the University of Pittsburgh football, whenever I was growing up, wasn't like a big thing. And my dad was a big pick guy. So I was a Steeler fan. My dad was a diehard Steeler fan. So whenever I was kicking next to Jeff Reed, that was really my only comparison. Like, okay, this is Jeff Reed kicking, but I have no idea how 17-year-olds are supposed to look. So when I go down there, they didn't let me kick for the first couple of days. I was just watching, you know. I was like, ah, I think I can do that. And, but then then you start questioning yourself. You're like, 
well, maybe it's humid down here. Maybe the ball doesn't fly as far in Florida. And then on Sunday, whenever that was all happening, like I couldn't even fathom how arrogant I was acting. I, I, I mean, it had to be insufferable. <laughs> it had to be insufferable. I mean, it had to be bad. Just And then as soon as it was over, Louis Aguiar shakes my hand after the 70-yarder goes wide right. He goes, I have no idea who you are, but I think you're going to do very good at this or something. Or you're going to make a lot of money at this. I was like, thank you, Louis. Like, I got to get out of here, you know? I got to go get on a plane. So I literally <laughs> – Yumi was just another Louis, <laughs> like hey, the guys in the basement. By the way, I had no idea who he was. I had no clue who Louis Aguiar was until I make it into the NFL and we're playing against, I think, the Jets or Kansas City. I forget who he was coaching for. And he walks over to me and I go, oh, my God, I know that guy. And Vinatieri's like, that's Louis Aguiar. I was like – and Louis comes over to me and he goes, do you remember in Miami? I was like – I was just about to ask you the same fucking thing. You, you, you're the guy. I said, you're the guy. He was like, yeah, I was the guy. I told a story about you a lot. I was like, oh, my God. So the next – I leave. I hop on a plane. I go home. I walk right off the field. I go right on a plane, lay over in Charlotte for, like, four hours. I don't get home to Pittsburgh until, like, I think 9, 9.30 at night or something like that on Sunday. And I tell my dad, you know, I'm like, hey, I think it was good. Like, I told him, I think it was good, right, because he wasn't there. I was like – I think I just bombed. I don't know how everybody else did, but I just bombed or whatever. He was like, okay, good for you or whatever. And then kind of went to bed. And next morning, uh, I was going to sleep in and go into school at like noonish. I didn't really have anything that morning or whatever. Jet lag is what I sold my mom and dad on, right? And they didn't want to hear it. They already hated me for doing this trip. They didn't like it. They're like, do whatever the hell you want. And so I get a vibrate. Uh, my brick starts vibrating at like 10.30, 10.45 a.m. And I look at it. And uh, it's a 304 number, and I answer it, and I go, hello. And he goes, uh, uh, why'd you answer my call or whatever? I was like, uh, uh, who is this? He was like, this is Tony Gibson from West Virginia University. I am driving up to your high school right now to offer you a scholarship. If you're not there in 15 minutes, I will turn around and leave or whatever. I was calling to leave you a voicemail to tell you congratulations. I assumed you were in school. I was like, oh, I'm in school. Yeah, don't worry about it. So I had to uh, obviously <laughs> – speed to the high school i had to get to the high school i walk i don't even check in really to school all my boys are like how'd it go i'm like it's pretty good i sit down at my lunch table and as i'm sitting down the football coach and um west virginia coach are walking into the cafeteria right with a trophy okay because i won a fucking trophy at this thing so they walk in at, <laughs> literally as i'm sitting down and uh my boys are like you say it went pretty good i'm like i think so and i turn around and it's uh, Tony Gibson, West Virginia coach, and my trophy, and head coach of the football team. And he's like, uh, I want you to be a Mountaineer, man. I'm like, deal. I'll come to West Virginia. I heard it's a great place to party. Have a good time. I'm on my way. And uh, I had to go then tell my dad I want to go to West Virginia, what had happened. And my dad followed up with, like, what happened at this camp? I was like, yeah, pretty good. Things went pretty good. I, <laughs> I mean, this story, I mean, it's just like you lived it, Pat, but you're a soccer player who just shows up on Friday when the games start kick every once in a while then you have to play poker to get your money <laughs> then you fly down to miami you don't get a chance to play then sunday you're like cinderella a punter or kickers you should have left your shoe there and not even left your name so all these coaches are going across america trying it on punters across it's just the greatest story ever it's not how any of this no one's ever had this happen right outside of you this story nothing close right you've never heard that. I don't think so because a lot of players get like super recruited. Like a lot of my friends, yeah. they had coaches coming into their like high schools on a daily basis. Like, like Rival, well, I all those websites that have got all, I mean, there's two major scout and rivals and they've got 
hundreds and thousands of players listed, guys that could never even play for Kent State. And then there's Pat, who's basically under the radar. And then it, it's just the greatest story. It just makes me feel good. Uh, ah. And no one else is going to have it happen. Makes Don't you listen think you, to this and think it's going to happen. Scott, makes you Scott. think you have a chance. Is that what yeah. you're <laughs> – There's still Scott. hope. Scott, I think I was yes. ranked like – I forget what I was ranked. I think I was ranked hundred and something, maybe on scout. Well, I was a punter that, in high school, but no, I don't have a chance. Well, that's because <laughs> you're handsome and athletic. That's what people do. But like on going into that weekend in Miami, I think I was in the hundreds of something, maybe ranked. On Monday, the Monday yeah. morning, I was number one, first team All American. The next morning, like literally, that's <laughs> great. The dumbest thing, dumbest thing possible. Because I could have, by the way. I mean, all of those kicks are about that far from either missing left or right, right? Like, I just so happened to get red hot on a day that was pretty important. And, uh, yeah, the really, the, being lucky is the story of my life. I mean, that's just – I've been a very so lucky you, person. I wanna, I'm going to fast forward here because people have seen a lot of the NFL stuff. And now I, I, I always watch – I love watching where people put labels on uh, – like. Uh, I'll see your intro somewhere and it'll be like podcaster, radio host. And it's, it's so amazing because I don't think of you as any one thing anymore. I think of you kind of like media mogul. I know it sounds awkward, and, but that's kind of, I think that's where your, where your, you know, trajectory is going. It's like, I, I, do you like to be known for any one type of thing or do you like this? Cause you're, you're in so many different things. It's hard to pin you down. You're an analyst on ESPN. You are, or have been done some uh, guest analysis in Thursday Night Football and stuff like that. But is that, uh, or I'm sorry, not Thursday Night Football, College Football Thursday. Um, I think what Frank's saying you. is just, just fucking pick something. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It's, it's wild at this point. It really is. Because the thing I'm most proud about is small business owner. Like that literally is because that is, that's the thing I'm most proud of because everything else kind of falls into that, right? Like I, I am very fortunate. I have overall 12 employees right now. Only nine of them are coming into work on a daily basis because we're only allowed 10 in Indiana. You're allowed to be around 10 people. So we only have nine guys coming. A lot of them are my friends. I mean, my brother, my dad. Um, so we go to work over here, man. I enjoy all those opportunities to do all those things. And I think some I'm much better at than others. I just, get to do a lot of things, but I'm trying to do, you know, I'm trying to do as much as possible. Enjoy the hell out of all of it. There's some stuff I definitely hate though. I mean, there's some stuff I hate. When you're, when you're, we can get to that, but when you're playing (laughs) football, do you, are you projecting yourself outside of football? Are you thinking about that when you're in the NFL and you're punting? Are you thinking, here's really what I want to be doing next. I think I asked you one time when I was just talking to you behind the scenes, I said, did you, did you want to be a punter or was this just kind of a step? Cause I think a lot of people now, this is all a step uh, uh, football, especially how hard football is the NBA. You get to be a star immediately. You can walk in and if you, I get Zion's not a great example, but you, oh. you can come in and be something fancy and the star that everybody's talking about right away. Football. It's a team. It's the ultimate team sport and everybody's necessary cog. Is, does any of that plan to you thinking, hey, I, I don't want to be a punter forever. I want to do something else. I've got out, stuff outside of this plan. I've been an NFL fan my entire life. So getting to be in the NFL was wild to me. I never would have guessed that as a kid. 
I was very lucky and I got grossly overpaid to do something in the NFL. Like I, <laughs> I very much understood that I was, I got to be friends with some elite humans. I got a chance to experience a lot of crazy things, both in college and in the NFL. But when I got in trouble, right. So when I got in trouble uh, for public intoxication for an alleged event in Broad Ripple, Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, <laughs> do you know the nobody, story, John? Do you know this? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> Everybody hey, else can look it up. Everyone <laughs> knows it. No, it's legendary. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. At the moment, it didn't feel like that. It was no. uh, a lot of people say um, that at Chris Jenner that, right? Like that that could have <laughs> potentially been on purpose. But to be 100% honest, when I was in handcuffs and in that solitary confinement, I thought for sure I am not a good enough punter to be in this position. This is, I am not a good enough, I am not a big enough piece of the Colts puzzle to be doing what I am currently doing right now during a bye week. So I know the firestorm that is currently cooking outside of this jail cell that I'm in right now. Right. And when I called my dad, you always think about the one phone call you're going to get from jail. Uh, you always hear about it. You never think you're actually going to take it. So when I called my dad, cause that's the only number I uh, remembered in jail, I go, uh, dad, I fucked up, you know, like, he's like, Oh, I heard. Yeah. Yeah. I, heard. I, was, like, <laughs> I was like, what's that? I was like, what's that man? He's like, uh, your mom saw it this morning on TMZ. It said uh, Indianapolis Colts punter arrested for being wasted with nine A's, Pat. Nine fucking A's in wasted. And I like, I like laughed, right? Like I, I like laughed. He was like, "Are you all right in there? Are you okay or whatever?" I'm like, "Man, I'm bummed or whatever." He's like, "Everybody out here is talking about it. Just want to let you know. And uh, if you need anything, let me." And then it hangs up. Okay. So I thought my dad hung up on me in jail, right? But what happened was they asked him if he wanted to buy more minutes. And my dad uh, told me that he and mom talked about it. And uh, <laughs> they decided it wasn't worth the, the financial investment yeah. at the time. Okay? I thought maybe he had to go play a poker game to have the money <laughs> to pay for. All right. Uh, I'll call you back in 10. Let me go. Let me go hustle <laughs> Uncle Johnny out of uh, uh, no. So whenever I was in jail, obviously it became a big story everywhere. I was suspended for a game. And nobody had a clue that I existed in Indianapolis, right? Hunter Smith was our punter for 10 years. Hunter the punter was a good dude. I was only on the team for one year, and we were undefeated for 16 games until we chose to lose. You're not punting much whenever you're a team that's going to the Super Bowl led by Peyton Manning, right? So nobody even knew I existed until October 20th, 2010, when I got arrested. So the news was live from the scene of the crime at one Ugh. point. I mean, there was just – there was wall-to-wall coverage of this thing in Indianapolis. Scott, you can attest to that, I, I think. Every, everything, it, it's shocking that you kept your job. I, I think <laughs> some of us kind of thought maybe it was the owners had his own struggles in life, and maybe he said, hey, let's give the kid a shot. Uh, I've had to have about 10 of them myself, so that probably <laughs> didn't hurt. Do you, do you really think, before you go on, Pat, do you think that helps with Ursay having some issues and stuff that he can, he can mentor you at that point? Yeah, Jim Ursay, Jim Ursay really and I had never talked before this event, right? So this happens, and then when Ursay would come to practice, he'd show up on a golf cart. His first destination after that event was to me and Adam Vinatieri, right? And he had never really talked to us. And I think, honestly, me and Jim became friends through this entire thing where he was like, he and I would have conversations that I don't think Jim Ursay would have a lot of conversations with humans. It's hard to relate to anybody whenever you're a billionaire and the owner of a team and you've had your struggles publicly that you've had. I think he was definitely a reason that I was not cut by Bill Foley. And I think, just like I said earlier, I was not good enough to be the distraction that I was at that moment. He can't get around. I mean, 
you can be who you can afford to be. And in that moment, I was not, I was nothing. Now, granted, at the end of my career, like I think if I would have got public intoxication, I would have never thought that I was going to get cut or never get a job again because it's not a violent crime. It's nothing like that. And I could, I was incredibly talented at that point. But at the beginning of my career, I was not. So I think Jim Irsay definitely helped me throughout that whole thing. But it was wall to wall coverage, man. My mugshot yeah. was shown. My mugshot was shown potentially twenty thousand times that week. I, it, it became like I went from nobody having a clue who I was to me going to the grocery store like that weekend and people going like, "Hey, it's a swimmer!" Like that literally started. <laughs> that literally started happening. Oh yeah, like that, oh, yeah. that weekend, right? So I started using yeah. my Twitter. I started using my Twitter a little bit more to. Um, I'm so sorry. I just got a FaceTime there. I started using my Twitter a little bit more to let people know, like, like, Hey, I obviously made a mistake on uh, Tuesday, October 20, 2010. I'm not a full blown idiot though. And I think my Twitter started gaining. I, I was really, I was built for Twitter. I think those early days where you had 140 characters, it was reactionary. It was relatable because I'm a pretty basic dude. It just so happens to be in a, an incredible spot. So Twitter, my Twitter following started going, right? My Twitter following started building and building in Indianapolis. And then I got hooked up with obviously the people from Bob and Tom, who I know everybody on this call has the utmost respect for. I, the Bob and Tom people completely changed how I thought about everything. I never really wanted to get in the radio. I never really thought about getting into comedy until I started hanging out with them. And uh, obviously Scott putting me on his stage for one of his charity stand-up things. I mean, I started having a little bit of success in fields outside of football. And I saw my Twitter following going and I saw the direction of the world with like digital media going. And it got to the point where I wasn't enjoying going on the field to kick when our offense failed as much as I had in the past. And I was enjoying doing stand up in front of like 2,800, 3,000 seat theaters yeah. that I was doing in the off season. Well, what I, what, I, what I love about that story, Pat, is like I think of my son who's 12 and he blames everybody when, but himself when he makes a mistake. And in this situation, not only did you own it, but you were like, you called yourself an idiot. And you're like, can you believe I did this? And everyone like fell in love with you. They didn't know who you were. And locally, you became this entity that I feel like every major city that's got an NFL team has got one guy who became a legend that shouldn't probably have been. Now, you you became one later because of your kicking. But at that time, you're right. You were not known, but people loved you. Then, of course, Bob and Tom grew it. I, I want to tell the story. The first time Pat, I had Pat go on, and I had never heard of him even doing stand-up. And I'm like, hey, just go and I had like a celebrity show, and there's like four other people that get up. And he gets up, and everyone else I had helped. He wanted no help. I didn't even know he was going to show up. He kind of showed up like that high school kicker about 10 minutes before the show. I'm like, is he showing up? So then he gets up. And he's got that irrational confidence. Like, you know, like a, a lot of like five foot nine black dudes like Nate Robinson having the NBA where you're like, this guy will shoot all day. He doesn't realize there are seven foot guys going to try to block a shot because he believes in everything he's doing. That was you on stage. I'm like, this guy is crazy. How is he? And you spent 20 minutes on stage. I don't even think you had an outline. And I'm like, Oh, well, okay. I spent uh, three years to get here and he basically did it in a night. So that, that's my experience of you as a stand-up. And I still so realize that, that makes you the Luis Aguilar of comedy. <laughs> I am 
I know. I'm, I'm Louis. I know. Yeah, Louis and I are going to have to have our own like FaceTime like uh, chat sessions together. Yeah, you both met him to the next level. Scott, I'm gonna be honest. I don't. I didn't think I was um, for that show. Like I was not super pumped about doing it. I thought I was going to stink. And I was like, I don't want my debut to stink in this because I think this is something I could potentially be good at, right, going forward. Yeah. So on the, on the drive over there, because if I'm not good at something the first time I try it, I'm probably never going to try it again. Like that, that's how I operate. I, I don't know. why. I think I'm going to die young, so I'm not wasting time on things I'm not good at. Like there's a lot of things I stink at. So if I'm not good at it early, I'm like, well, Let's move on. That was just not built for me. Right? Like I've tried music a couple of times. I've tried to learn how to play guitar. I can't do it. I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'm out. Everybody else in the family has it. I got I, I just thought it. And that's not a lot of grit, I guess, but it's it's one of those things. So on the ride over to that show, uh, I was probably indulging in some vitamins or whatever. And I was like, uh, just go on stage and act how you're, how you're supposed to act if you're a stand-up comedian. I was like, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll just go and, and act how I'm supposed to act. And I was like, what am I going to talk about? I was like, yeah, you'll figure it out. But you got to remember, like working in an NFL locker room is one of the hardest crowds of all time. I mean, you're talking about a group of very successful dudes from all over the place. It's like, I feel like I got my chops and my work in, in locker rooms and in other environments. So I was like thinking in my head, these people all think I'm a drunk idiot anyways. They can't be a harder crowd than what a <laughs> locker room could potentially be. And that's kind of how it went. And I, I appreciated that opportunity. I needed somebody to push me in. To force me to do it and uh yeah, I, you kind of you did I that did kind of force you i kind of did a muhammad ali thing he was doing like a live remote and i walked yeah. in i was like the next guest i'm like hey pat should do my celebrity show and i put you on the spot and you're like yeah, yeah okay i'll do it in july and i'm like oh sweet but i think of frank frank you've done so many locker rooms you're like the only comedian that's kind of done that and you've told us that's like the hardest place ever to try to get laughs right I Pat, I had the. I, I usually they know me going in, like I do the Raiders and and uh, Arizona. That's been that's been good. They they kind of know me from NFL stuff. The worst show I've talked about this a couple of times. The worst. I'm not even going to call it a show. The worst. I wouldn't even call it an appearance. I went on stage for Clemson a couple of years ago, and it was Clemson and o, uh, uh, the Ohio State University were here, and they were separate. You know. Um, Urban came to see me in the Ohio State, but they didn't make it mandatory. They made Clemson. They made that show mandatory. Oh. And Dabo wasn't there. Dabo, what he was, he was at a meeting. Urban left his meeting. That tells you a lot about Urban, right? He's like, I was out. I just didn't go to the meeting. I don't want to see you. So he comes <laughs> to see that. Dabo's at his meeting, but I'm I'm going up. Uh, you know, it's that that's the championship year. And I think, yeah, it was. But uh, I go up and um, what's his name? Uh, quarterback in Houston. Um, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson. He, he doesn't take his headphones off. Like he's just, <laughs> nobody's, nobody's got their headphones off. I don't know if they're listening to him or not. And I'm just, I'm just up there sucking it. Just, just terribly. Cause it's young kids from the South growing up watching SEC, ACC football. They don't care about John Gruden. They don't remember John Matt. I told uh, the Fiesta Bowl, I think it was, I told them I shouldn't be doing this. I'm grandpa Frank to these guys. Uh, culturally, I don't fit. It's just the wrong thing. And they kept raising the money and I kept making the time smaller. So I was like, all right, I'll do it, but it's going to be awful. But when I was up there, I started bringing players up to do their own impressions. 
<laughs> and the I can't remember the guy's name, but the athletic director's son was on the team, and he did some impressions. But I didn't know that nobody liked the athletic director's son. And I have him up there with me, and it's just it's Jeff Dunham and Peanut, and. <laughs> It's oh. nobody like we're just going back and forth of nothingness, and people are like, okay, this is just this is five or six years ago. And I remember somebody hey. asked, um, what was the running back's name? Frank something. Um, but he, he on the I think he went to the Giants. Somebody asked him like, ESPN. There was supposed to be no press, but they asked him what was uh, what was it like? How was Frank Caliendo? He's like. <laughs> <laughs> He gave the Scott Long – like it was just an – and he was right. He was 100% right. It was terrible. And that was one of the last times I just took the money. Like I went, I'm taking the money on this because it's at home. I don't have to go anywhere. And it, I, I literally had it down from an, two one-hour shows to two 15-minute shows. And I couldn't fill the 15 minutes on – and I went in with a bad attitude too. I went in with a – uh, just, I'm not going to fit this. I'm not going to fit this crowd. It's not going to be right. And I think it might've been some of a self fulfilling prophecy, but it was, it was tank city. And I'm just watching, I'm just going, Oh, but I didn't know there was going to be press there either. If I didn't know press, I'm like, it was supposed to be a private little thing for each of the teams. And then they write about me. They write Frank Caliendo was terrible in the Arizona. You're not supposed to be there. Hey, those those things that are mandatory, though, anything that's mandatory, college kids are going to hate. I mean, especially yeah. in those bowl week practices, because you got all those media obligations. Then you got the bowl events and then you got this and you got that and you got a rather large game at the end. A mandatory event. You you were set up to fail long before you started any of your impressions that they definitely didn't know who it was. Yeah, it just was complete disinterest. I mean, I don't think they were trying to be mean about it. It was just like, why are we here kind of a thing. And then Grandpa Frank, little Italian guy, shows up. And they, hey, don't. Hey, guys, you're ready for some voices? Who likes Ed and G. Robinson, huh? Doing Billy Crystal stuff. Yeah, I had no idea. You know, it's just brutal. I love hearing that. To circle back, I want to know, everybody knows the incident that occurred and stuff and the aftermath, but what was the night like prior? It was a day. It was a day into. <laughs> we started. It was, uh, yeah. It was a, it was a bender. We, yeah, we had a full. I mean, it was bye week, man. It was bye week. We, there was. Oh. And we, you got So my rookie year, we make it to the Super Bowl. Yeah. I wasn't supposed to be there. We lose to the Saints, but there was. Imagine if they, we made the Super Bowl and we. We had a team that didn't have a punter, basically. I had no idea what I was doing my entire first year. I mean, I was – if I hit a good ball, I didn't know why. And if I hit a shank, I didn't know why. Like, I didn't understand the intricacies of punting yet. I literally just picked it up a couple months, like, of NFL-style punting. I literally just picked it up a couple months before the NFL season started. We make it a Super Bowl. Then I have more money than I could have ever imagined. I have more time than I could ever imagine. I was a single man. I had – that offseason was – I mean, it was, I was on a run there. I was on a run. I mean, I rode a camel in Africa at one point. I was in a rave in Munich. I mean, I was, I mean, that was everywhere. I was everywhere, man. It was, I had a great time, like a great, great time. Cause I thought, you know, I have no clue how many more times in my life I'll have this amount of money that I had, I had after my rookie year. I'm not in a relationship and I have no clue if I'm going to ever be in the NFL again. So instead of thinking like, 
hey, I'm going to save my money. Instead, I did the complete opposite. I'm like, I'm going to go do everything that I ever wanted to do. And then if I make the team again, we'll just, you know, reset. Uh, next and who's showing you around? Who's the person that's like, we're going to Rome? We're going to Rome. Oh, we're just doing I get a text from a friend that was like, like, you know, that Nelly song where he was like, uh, somebody texted him and was like, got a party in New York. Can you make it or whatever? And like, damn right. And that was my life, literally. Like, I get a text from like Pierre Garçon. He's in Florida. He's like, hey, I got a party tomorrow night if you want to come through. And I'd be in Indianapolis and I would just empty out my uh, suitcase from the week before and I would just grab my t shirt that I bought from Target, my underwear I bought from Target. And my socks I bought from Target, put it in a bag. And I was in Florida. And I come home, empty the bag, sleep for like 48 hours. And I get a text like, hey, come to New Mexico. I'm like, all right, deal. Here I come. <laughs> and it was just like, it just never stopped. So I had a good time all that off season. And I got into the season again. We had an early bye week, October. So, I mean, I, I was I was rolling that entire time. It was it was day into night. I mean, it was, a, it was stupid. I was living very dumb. I needed that moment, to be honest with you. It had to happen for me. Where I, I don't know. I definitely wouldn't have been in the NFL. I'm not 100% sure I would have survived. I mean, I was going very, very hard. I mean, no I was kidding. Yeah, I was living a bit. Well, living. and that, that, that team that you were on is really, you know, so unique. Not only were they all a, a perfect football team, you had a really laid-back coach in Jim Caldwell. You've got the legend at quarterback that I'm sure you were nervous around all the time. And then you're, you're, you're kicking every day with the GOAT. You know, Vinatieri. Yeah, yeah. It's this weird yeah. – and then you're the only guy that comes in there and doesn't know what the hell they're doing, and you're next to the GOAT. I mean, yeah. how does that work? Vinatieri helped me out a lot, obviously, mentally, right? Vinatieri is the best in between his ears. That's why he'll go into the Hall of Fame because in those master moments, he comes through with class. You know, that's just that's just what Vinatieri – I'm very lucky that Vinatieri befriended me quickly, and Peyton did, by the way. Peyton was a big fan. I don't know if it was like a dance monkey – type operation where he would bring me into places and it was like, look, Hey, look at this thing we found here now, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know if that was the case. But hey, Pat, I, I just brought in uh, Sean Salehi. He works with us. Um, he's a, he's a broadcasting student and throughout the, um, at the end of shows, he's 22 years old. He will usually tell us what our old guy references are that we need to get rid of. He obviously Mark. didn't have any of those with you. But he did have a question, uh, like any broadcast student would, uh, that he wanted to bring to the table with you. And he's got class in five minutes, so yeah. he, he didn't want to Pat McAfee it, but I wanted him to have a chance to talk to you. Hey, Sean, nice to meet you, bud. You're doing great work, honestly. I, I appreciate everything you're doing for these olds <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> happy somebody appreciates what I do here. Uh, thank you, Pat. My, my question for you is, could you explain or dive into what has been called the worst trick play in NFL history, the swinging gate play that you were a part of with the Colts back in, uh, I believe, 2015? Well, Sean, great question. Uh, deep investigative journalism here. The um, uh, That ball was not supposed to be snapped, Sean, okay? And there's a lot of things that happened in that play. Uh, there was a full offsides by the entire uh, we had eight guys lined up offsides also in that play because we get talked about enough. Um, I was standing 15 yards back on the sideline, obviously, but my name is across the bottom of the screen, Pat McAfee into punt. So the worst play in the history of football, some people say, the only one name that's associated is the name that's on the bottom of the screen, which is my name. So I'm very thankful for that. Uh, Griff Whalen, who snapped the ball to Colt Anderson, was ultimately not supposed to snap that ball. But Colt Anderson... Uh, by the playbook, 
wasn't supposed to go in there and do a hard count to try to draw them off sides. If he wasn't going to snap the ball, he wasn't supposed to do a hard count. So the goal of the play was to hopefully catch the New England Patriots, which are the most well-prepared team in the <laughs> NFL. The goal was hopefully we would act as if we're subbing. They would we catch them in a sub. Okay, so they would bring their defense back on. We would have their special teams going off. They would have too many men. Since we didn't have anybody completely go off the field, we wouldn't have had the ref when it stood over the ball. We could have snapped it. So the goal of the play was to either snap it with them having too many men and Cole Anderson takes a knee. It doesn't matter because they have too many men. We're going to move. We're going to get a first down. Or don't snap it and take a delay of game penalty. Back it up five yards. We'll punt from there. So it was a win-win in theory. In theory, it was a win-win. Uh, Griff Whalen, who was the center, he was the gunner on the left side. He ran over to be the center. He was not the center in practice all week. Uh, <laughs> another guy was who got sick the morning of the game. Griff Whalen was something there because he was our do-it-all Stanford smart nerdy kid. He was told to read the playbook. In the playbook, it says, if Cole Anderson goes under center, snap the ball because you might not be able to hear him. So Griff read the playbook in his head, in his understanding, if Cole Anderson goes under center, he's snapping the ball. Cole Anderson was told by, I don't know how many coaches, it was alleged that at least one coach of rather importance told him <laughs> that if they don't sub, try to draw him off sides because we're taking a delay of game anyways, didn't relay that message to Griff Whalen. So when Griff Whalen gets under or gets over the ball, Cole Anderson sees they're not subbing. Cole Anderson was just like, all right, we'll just try to draw him off sides or whatever. He goes under center and goes, hey, thinking nothing's going to happen. Ball gets snapped. Worst play in football history, all because of one miscommunication, Sean. Great question. Do you think that Belichick at that point turns to his staff and goes, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, man. I hope he can. There's, they, <laughs> there it is. What were they? What were they trying to? What were they trying to do there? What you should have heard the next day. Obviously, the internet was a buzz with that play. The next day, though, in the meeting room, a lot of laser pointing with circles. Like, what's going on here, guys? What do we got going on here? Look at this, man. You see what's going on here? Don't ever do this. Oh, you seem to be in the middle of that. That's that stuff seems to find you though. There's yeah. You, you get out there, put yourself in those situations. I don't want to say even negatively. You're willing to take the chances a lot of times, but something. This one wasn't so much that, but there was just that element of, hey, Pat McAfee's just there again. Pat McAfee is the Forrest Gump of. I mean, he really. Yeah. He's like the Forrest Gump of the of you know of sports. He just appears in all these like oh, who's the kicker that blew up a guy on a kick? a kicker oh that's pat mcafee of course you know <laughs> every one of these stories it's like i don't know the you you would be the worst guy to be at a kicker's like convention because you would be the absolute topper on every freaking story like a guy like so, hey, remember that time i made a block and then mcafee walks in remember when i blew that dude up on a kickoff <laughs> man so, that they, took a good turn ridiculous moments follow me that's why i don't really i don't i've never ever said that i'm a stand-up comedian because i'm not making up things i'm just retelling situations right i have a very good memory which i'm very lucky for and comedy, especially whenever go ahead i'm sorry pat but comedy has become more of that storytelling the burt kreischer's yeah. uh yeah 
everybody's having a heart more of a storyteller they used to say that to us in the early 2000s when we're coming up doing stand-up john is a master of that on the radio it's storytelling brings people into your world and joke telling is one thing but the storytelling and making making it interesting throughout weaving in whether they're jokes or just little tidbits or moments or there's authenticity everything that comes back with with you here today to me there's authenticity with it right you admit freely i was an idiot when you're drunk and jumping in the water it's allegedly People love that. That's the Charles Barkley theory, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so I always thought honesty was comedy in my life, right? It all depends on how the perspective that you choose to look at it. And I've been dropped into such ridiculous situations. That's why I'm, I'm lucky, but I, I know when I'm in a situation, that's probably going to make a good story. Like for my friend group for a long time, whatever I would go, whether it was a soccer tournament where there was a brawl that happened and I would come back and tell the story in the football locker room when something would happen in a workout Later that night in the dorm, me retelling the story would always like these moments for me, like in living rooms after parties, me like it always was something where people were always amazed at what I could recall. And then my perspective on situations people always enjoyed. So when I did stand up, I always just assumed that would be it. Like, hey, and when I tell a story in my mind, I'm literally walking through the story yet again because when I'm in the situation that I'm in that I think is gonna be a good story, I actually look around to get like the details so that when I tell the story, I'm like, there was like some beat up brick on the right side. I don't know why it was there. It kind of <laughs> looked like an old stand up comedy club, but a little bit more, a little bit more terrible. Like I, I do that whenever I'm in a situation so that whenever I do have to tell the story, I just walk through and look around. And I've just been in so many ridiculous places. And I just, I, I have the wherewithal in those moments to be like, oh, people are gonna want to hear about me right now in a suite at this University of Tennessee game with Pat Summit, Bruce Pearl, the governor of Tennessee, Peyton Manning, and the AD of Tennessee. Like, people are going to want to hear about this yeah. story. Yes. Like, my boys yeah. are going to want to hear about this. So when I'm in there, even though I'm housing beers and they're impressed by my chugging abilities and stuff like that, I'm looking around like, you know what? This is awesome, and people are going to hear about that. And every time I tell a story, I never make anybody else look bad, right? I'm always the – I don't – I don't enjoy whenever people out other people with their stories and they make other people look bad. Like if somebody wants to look like an idiot, I'll let them do it. I am always the idiot in my stories, except for when it comes to uh, the general manager that I did not like that I've moved past. That's literally the only time I've ever really spoken ill of a human while telling a story. I think that's a, a big part of this entire thing is always be the idiot, understand that I'm in a situation that is stupid and I shouldn't be in. And let me recant these stories for people and hopefully they'll enjoy it. It's such a crazy gift, though, that people are, I think, again, Frank and I were talking about it before. It's like a, the loss of the ability to tell a story and know when to absorb what's around you is, is becoming lost because I think Instagram and everything else is an immediate memory for people. It's so, because on the radio, when you interview somebody, you pray for somebody like Pat McAfee, who's an open book, authentic, and gets what to notice in a room to tell a story. And that's dying. That art is dying. Yeah, I wonder... I think it, the immediate, uh, the, the instant gratification world, like that one post that people are looking for, they'll take a picture. If you ever see somebody walk by like a, a monument or something that's really nice, they'll take a picture, post it, then head goes down, they walk by. They don't even see what is right. potentially happening right on the other side. Like, I think we're in a world where everybody kind of has blinders on. Now, granted, everybody's social distancing and being forced to stay home. But I think even before this, 
I think a lot of people are kind of living in their own world for instant gratification. I'll get a flex on the IG real quick on what I'm doing. I just enjoy like experiencing things. Like I very much yeah. enjoy, it might be my vitamin intake to be honest with you, but I enjoy, <laughs> like I just enjoy experiencing life. Like I think that, it's- uh, That was my wife watching my son and daughter play sports. She would watch it through the iPad or the, the phone. I'm going, watch this. You put that on a tripod and let it go. Watch right. the moment because you're going to be able to see that anytime, but following it in front, it, it takes away and nobody, yeah. I do think, and I don't want to say there's a positives out of this coronavirus and all this stuff, but there are these moments of, holy cow, we've been missing life. We've been missing yeah. a lot of things. And, um, I think again, I don't want to bring and say there's good, but you, you can reflect at least and, and take those, those moments. Learning lessons. There's always something good that comes from something bad or it's pointless. So there's learning lessons in what we've got. And I totally agree. I think people are looking around going left to my own devices. I'm terrible at coming up with things to do. And it's making us have to kind of examine ourselves again, you know, and figure out how we're good at stuff. Cause we've been so reliant on the, on the hand brain or the, the phone and whatever showing us and telling us the story instead of, <laughs> being able to tell a story ourselves. I don't think- you know, I want to just talk. jump in and just- No, no I'm I was just going to say, because John and Pat have something in common. You guys hate kids, right? I don't hate kids. I just don't want yours around. Yeah, me neither. Me okay, neither. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, I like them. I just you don't, don't want, want to be around them. kids. Uh, no. I could see where this, this whole quarantine thing is a positive if you don't have children in your house. But if you're right. surrounded by children, like I am, I'm really struggling to find any positives right now. Yeah. I'm hoping eventually it happens. I, I'm glad that it's happened for you, John and Pat. You continue to have some kind of communication with adults. That's yeah. nice. And uh, I congratulate you on it. And I, I hope the next few months when I'm still with my children, uh, that it continues to be good for you. I just want to put that out there. Did you get a vasectomy, Pat? Did you clean it uh, up? Did you make sure it's I, not happening? I have not. I, I, I hope that, I, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen. But my fiance, I think she's kind of turning the corner on potentially wanting a kid in the future. And maybe I oh, am boy. as well. But yeah, I know. The, um, the, the things come out that they think there's going to be a big baby boom in nine months yeah. or whatever at this quarantine. I have friends that have kids. And they call me and they're like, hey, don't even talk about that baby boom in this quarantine. I'm like, why? They're like, if it'll happen, it'll be for first-time parents. Anybody who has a kid already yeah. never wants another kid ever again. And I was like, I didn't even think about how your life is terrible. Absolutely <laughs> terrible right now. Isn't it funny, though, Pat? Like, you don't have kids, and I don't have kids. But everybody through this thing is like, everyone will preface their story about what's going on with. It's easy for you. You don't have kids. Like, oh, we're, yeah. not, we're not affected by anything right now because we're free. <laughs> hey, and by the way, I understand. I, 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 my friends have FaceTime me from the middle of them trying to e-teach their three kids who have no respect yeah. for their brain. Right. They have no respect for their brain. None. So when they're trying to teach their kids things, their, teacher, their kids are like, you don't know. Shut You don't even know. Like, I got some friends with some badass kids. They are in the middle of a tough time right now. So I feel for you guys. I want to let you know I feel for you guys. But let's not act like John and I aren't having a problem with this. I mean, we're having problems too. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, There's only so many football games I can play with my wife and defeat her before I get bored. Card games too, bro. How many can you win before you're? Yeah, you're I know before you before you got to call somebody up and at least play online for crying out loud. This is I'm, I'm dominating in this house. Pool darts, wiffle ball. I'm the king. I knew that going in, but this is ridiculous. John, 
Or my late my lady, my lady brought out Monopoly on me. I've never played before. Oh yeah. my god, I got my dick kicked in, John. That game is not meant for me. That's like a that is very much. <laughs> I am a checkers guy. That is a chess game. You got to yeah. think long term in that game. I am a how do I jump over you right now? King yeah. me type operator. <laughs> I'm not thinking in the future. I'm thinking right now. Monopoly killed me. My lady got easy. See, here's how you win at Monopoly with my wife is that I tell her it's going to work the exact same way the world is. Uh, for every dollar I get, she got 79 cents. So it worked out perfect. I dominated from the <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's going to be a good quarantine. You think kids are a problem? Say that to your wife. <laughs> What do you think, what do you think, Pat, about the draft? Because uh, the NFL draft. Because I, I personally, these these I'm going to call them kids. Some of them are men, but it's that I know what's going on in the world. But people have worked their entire lives to get to this moment to get drafted, and you know they're not stopping hiring scientists and stuff. I, I just to. <laughs> I really, it's the same thing. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Have you talked about that at all? No, I, I think you got to remember, like, draft day might be a blast for some people, right? You're, you're experiencing this dream. I was picked 222. I thought I was going back to school. Like, I, I, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the end. Draft weekend was a nightmare for me, right? Like, I, I had no idea if I was going to get picked up. I didn't know if I was going to get drafted. I didn't know if I was going to end up back in school. I didn't know if I had played my last football games. I didn't know if I was going to try to get back in shape and play soccer. I mean, draft weekend was a very scary weekend. I think for me and a lot of people, because you have no clue what's going to happen, right? You have no idea. All you need is one GM to not like you, talks to another GM who doesn't like you. And then on the flip side, all you need is one GM to love you, right? So I think the biggest thing with this draft moving forward, I think it's needed, by the way. I, I think... Roger Goodell and the boys moving forward in spite of the GMs unanimously voting against them moving forward with it because they can't see these players. They don't know if they're mentally or physically ready to be a part of their culture. You have no idea what you're bringing in if you never get a chance to really meet them in person. You got to remember these teams are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for ex-Navy SEALs to, to do psychology tests on these players to see if you can get a little bit of a jump on the type of human that you're bringing into your office that you're potentially paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to or millions of dollars to these GMs and scouts, they had their chances at the combine, I guess, to meet them. But aside from that with follow-up visits and workouts, I think a lot of GMs and scouting departments are a little bit worried. They have no clue what they're actually getting whenever this draft day comes. So pulling the trigger on somebody that you're potentially going to spend a couple million dollars on is going to be a little bit tough for the general managers and the owners and Goodell are like, well, these guys got to deal with it because we got to move forward. So for me, I'm not as worried for the players. I think the players are actually in a better spot than a worse spot because things that they might have um, might have got exposed in whether a meeting or something along those lines, they don't have to fake get ready for an interview with teams and stuff like that. I think for the GMs and the scouts, though, there's a lot of question marks on what human are we bringing into our culture that's either already established. Your culture is your most important thing. The teams that win are the teams that have good cultures. There's a lot of teams that are good teams, but they have a bad culture. They're never going to win a Super Bowl because ultimately, like you said, it is a team sport. Everybody's got to be in it together, right? you got to be playing for each other, not just alongside each other. That is a big deal 
in an NFL locker room that I don't think a lot of people understand outside of an NFL locker room is you have to have a lot of good dudes pulling and rowing the boat, as B.J. Fleck would say, in the same direction. So I think the GMs and scouts are a little bit worried about that. But I think that I think it's ultimately a good decision for the world to move forward and give us a little bit something to talk about. I, I before think so, too. And some media people who've been going on about how they shouldn't have it, I go, well, then just don't report about it. Don't tell people. Right. You, according you to my sources, according to my source, he, he was not happy. He was not happy. <laughs> I didn't get that. Today. And I, I love Shefty. And I don't understand. Me too. I don't I don't understand what that I, I don't know where it comes from, because I guess I, I understand some of it. But at the same time, so many people I put stupid comedy things out and fun and silly stuff. And I get so many people every day saying, thank you for thank giving you. me this diversion. I'm sure you get yeah. tons of it. Thank you. It's, uh, you too, John. Scott. Yeah. You get these things that people say, we get it with the podcast. Thank you. This sense of normalcy in this weirdness is helpful to keep going. And just from a fan perspective of the NFL draft, it gives you hope that there can still be a season. Even if it's a delayed season or whatever, you don't have the draft. You you go, there's nothing to look forward to. You know how many people in the middle of the country look forward to football, your dad, for that to be their life? Hey, so that's what I think that I don't want to say the coastal elitists didn't fully understand, but it was real. Like that national anthem stuff. A lot of people said, like, that's not the reason why the ratings were dropping. Scott can attest to this. Out here in Indianapolis, there was people hanging sheets outside of their house and said, protest the NFL, right? Because yeah. you're in the middle of America. There's a couple of things that you love, right? You love the military because everybody out here knows somebody that has served in the military or lost somebody in the military. Yeah. The middle of America has that, right? They love football. Every single Sunday or Saturday if they're college football is their escape. Their happiness that week depends and rides upon the 11 dudes on offense, 11 dudes on defense, 11 dudes on special teams representing their team in a positive fashion. If they make a mistake, they're living and dying with every single game. The draft, even though it's not a game, is their team that is their lifeline to their happiness, either getting better or getting worse in their eyes. It's something to react to. In this particular situation, it's a lot bigger than just the NFL, this draft. This is a little bit of sense of normalcy, just like you said. And it's sanity for some people that there's actually something worth watching that could affect my happiness down the road. And that is good for me at the current moment. It yeah, gives you it also, it, well, it leads yeah. to the point also that you can go, like, because I remember the Steelers picking Devin Bush last year, and as a huge Steelers fan, that didn't just give me hope for this year. That made me look down the road 10 years. If he pans out, I'm happy for a decade. And that is, it's a fleeting moment, but that's what football gives you. That's what this draft does. Teams that have stunk, like the Cardinals getting uh, a Murray last year, was a team that was in dire need of hope. And now the weird thing is it's not just the sport. It's, it's all of us. Like we're all sitting there saying, what can I be happy about that is long-term? And as silly as it seems, picking a guy like Devin Bush last year, happening this year, would make me feel fantastic. It's a diversion. It's a decades-long hope. And it gives you a chance to say this isn't forever, which I think everybody's kind of mired in right now. Yeah. Pat, are you pressed for time at all? You got to get out of here. We've been quite a bit. What time is it right now? Uh, it's f- uh, 4.15 your time. Yeah, I got to go interview Australian rules football player Mason Cox in 15 minutes. <laughs> there you go. I, before we get go, uh, one. His nickname is Coxzilla. <laughs> that was Scott's nickname. <laughs> 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 
Have you seen this Aussie Rules football, Frank? John? I've been watching it through you. I've been watching it through you. I, I ran into it when I was in Australia. It's incredible. And that, you talk about passion for a sport. Oh. That country is insane. John, insane. I, caught, yeah. I had a one-night stand with the AFL, the Aussie Rules football. They were the only thing on television. It was like 1 a.m. on Fox. All other sports had stopped. They were playing the uh, Aussie Rules football, the AFL, in an empty stadium over there. I couldn't sleep. I was on a bunch of vitamins. I was just flipping through like, there has to be something on. And I landed on this AFL, and I watched it for – I think I saw two and a half quarters of it. I was yeah. like, where the hell has this been my entire life? So yeah. I put out a couple of tweets at 1.30 a.m., right? I'm like, this sport is brand new to me. Let me tweet alongside of it. I woke up the next morning. I was trending in Australia. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, uh, I'm potentially helping push the game of Aussie it's Rules amazing. football. It's what, awesome. Watch it. You can't get away. I was in Australia, and I'm like, all right. And I watched the game. I'm like, what in the hell is this? And then I looked, and it happened to be – a newspaper clipping in my hotel room of the top 10 shows to watch in Australia. Seven of the top 10 were called the footy show and they oh. were all different shows, but they just had the same name because nobody cared. If you're talking about like, Hey, we talk footy. We don't care. We're going to do footy tonight. And then we're going to talk about swimming and then footy and then more footy. Then we're going to eat and then footy. And then they watch game and that's their whole life during the season. So many shows I've gotten. And this is not a joke. I've gotten 75 interview requests from Australia from different shows <laughs> that cover I was on I was on Good Morning Australia I think at one point. I mean it's I'm becoming like I'm, yeah. I'm hoping I just I just found the game, had a one night stand with them. I've obviously gone down a lot of YouTube rabbit holes on it. This game might be the best game ever created and, and I it's cannot incredible. wait for them to get back in. Frank, they're slaughtering each other. They're running, <laughs> they're kicking. I mean it is awesome. Yeah, I, you didn't know that Oh, go ahead. I'm just gonna say, don't don't you, Pat? Don't you when you watch it go? This was my exact talents. I could have been the greatest yeah. American Aussie Rules football player. By the way, I'm still not ruling out taking a bunch of steroids and stuff and trying to get back to shape. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two last things before. Uh, how long before you're a wrestling champion? I'm yes. trying my best, Frank. I'm trying right now. I had Triple H on my show. When's this come out? We're coming out right away. We're just going to come out later today. So I, I had I had Triple H on my show earlier today, and I almost – Is that out yet? Is that is that out? Yeah, it already happened. It's pretty good. You'll see clips. Clips will start dispersing. Just watch them on Twitter or whatever. The um, I almost put them like – I almost put them on the spot. Like, when are you going to let me get in the ring, pal? But I didn't because they got a lot going on, obviously, <laughs> with the COVID-19. They're an international business. But I have a ring in the studio set up right now. I've been getting to work on there. I hit a moonsault the other day, which is a backflip off the top rope. I I'm want trying to get to watch this stuff. Frank, I, I got to lose like 30. You, you look like you could be double H. You look like his little <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And last thing, uh, everybody knows Pat McAfee show, uh, available on everything, everywhere on DAZN, uh, the app. You're, you're, a, you're a master. You're on radio, syndicated all over the place. Um, my last thing. A guy down the street, across the street from me, his name is, I'm going to see if you know this name. We'll just cut it if you don't. Jamie Cole. You know that name? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So across the street from me, it's actually on the other side of the block. He was a soccer player, very similar, um, but not, not a, not, didn't have this incredible leg or anything. But he would go out and kick every day. He'd just go out and kick with his dad and his brother. I think his, dad's, his brother's Andrew and dad yeah. is Ken. Um, Andy, yeah. Andy Cole, yeah. My brothers played soccer with them. 
Turns out this guy has, if not the biggest kicking camp in the, the world or the country. It's, it, did you go there? He's the one, him and Thomas Morstead taught me how to punt after I got drafted. Okay. So, like, Jamie Cole is my guy, my guy, my guy. Like, I, he's the best coach in the country, too. He's Rambling very good. Rose Road, man. Rambling Rose Road right there in Waukesha, singing hills. Uh, I stayed at that house. I've slept at that house before. Yeah, I, I lived at Avalon Drive. Avalon Drive was the one that cut, was the main one off of Highway 18, and uh, that was Rambling Rose right there that they, that's crazy. He's awesome, and, dude. He's very good at what he does. I love that, man. So great. Um, thanks for being uh a part of this year i told like I, t I told john john knew a little you knew a little bit about pat but not i've watched on the zone i've seen things and I, i'm not i haven't been like following like you're everywhere so you're hard to miss but uh yeah i haven't i'm like i know enough about him to get through this but i don't know all the intricacies of all the, the new stuff but it's you told me you'd be non-stop open book and boom set quietly there's too much of me right now john there's too much no of me today. right now ah! i don't know at this point, I, I don't know if that's in the sit current situation. I don't think that's 100% true. If Even if you thought that in regular everyday life, you might be like, I'm in too many places. Right now, I actually think it's a really good thing to be in more places, and it helps more people. And uh, thank you so much and, and for, for helping us today. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. It is my honor, sir. Frank, I told you this when you came in the studio the first time. I've been a massive fan of yours for a long time, man. I am so until I don't I know if I'm, until I botched it. <laughs> well, he talked down to me like I was a child a little bit. You know, he's talking <laughs> to me as if he's talking to me as if he was John Gruden and I was a punter on John Gruden's team. And I was like, "Hey, Frank, hey, pal, all right, shut the fuck up, all right? You're gonna stop talking to me like <laughs> I'm a kid." I've told the, I've told this a couple times on the show that I was like, "God, I thought I was being a, a cool to him, and I thought we were buddies." And I'm like, "Oh, I got dressed down like I was the biggest." <laughs> I'm never doing this again. I'm changing, and I've changed how I do things now. Like I don't go into a room and just blast. I go, okay. Uh, hey, you look. <laughs> it, now, it was a learning you, experience. You've taught me so much. Everybody, no, you said, no, you said it though. You said it though. Where I'm from, right, Pittsburgh. I'm a right, Pittsburgh I think there's. Guy. I think there's a piece where pe people from the Pittsburgh area, because Bill Crawford, who's on the DVE Morning Show, I do the same thing with him. I always go in and just pound. I, I have great respect for him, too. And he's a great comic. I just go in and pound, pound, pound. And they're like, ah. He's like, ah. And Randy, the, 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 the main host, is always like. Bauman. Yeah, Randy Bauman. He's just having fun with you. And, and uh, Crawford's just like, ah, I know. But I take it a different way because I don't put myself on a pedestal, really. I just look and I go, hey, I'm in that NFL locker room. But you know what? You were right. I would never go into the NFL locker room and do that same thing. I would be like, okay, fellas, who wants to <laughs> No, Frank, I've just had so much respect for you forever, man. You're a legend in the NFL locker rooms, man. You're talented. You shouldn't – now, the Clemson kids had no idea who you were, obviously, and they were forced to listen to you. But, man, you are so talented. Scott, big fan. You're my Louis Aguiar, foul. And, John, yeah, I, I know. I love that. that. It's great. Yeah. All right, I man, appreciate you, you guys. Thanks so much. Incredible, man. Thank you. See ya. Sean, too. Sean. Is that his name? Yeah, he's in class. Sean Salehi. No, I'm here. There's no class. Everything's canceled. Oh, there he is. He's All still right. there. All right. Sean, go back to class. See you, man. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. You know what it is, Frank? He's Billy Gardell in great shape. Same voice. <laughs> he's, I'm telling you, he's something else. That was awesome. He's, he's, he's awesome. He's, a, he's amazing. Nonstop. Hey, he did that, that. Your class, your broadcasting class?
can't compare to what just happened. Oh, I didn't go. Yeah. I didn't go to class. It was like a 10 minute meeting. We're airing this. You know that, right? That's fine. Yeah. yeah. You ditched it because the Cronkite school can't do anything to me for missing a 10 point. Yeah, because you just interviewed Cronkite himself. There you go. That's the way it is. So yeah, yeah. No, like that was back. that was. I mean, I I pretty much made it clear because my roommates in the class too. I was like, yeah, I'm not I'm not fucking getting on this uh, call. He's, I have to. he's one of those guys that you just you give him the ball and he can just go. Yeah, it was he's incredible. Clay, your parents said that giving hand jobs at the airport wouldn't pay off. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's great. Those those open book guests, you cannot. You can't replace that. That dude's yeah. just that special something. You're like, hey, go nuts, and he wants to. So, and, and he's I engaging. Like, like, he's great. You know how this is. When I first met him, I think I probably was. I wasn't meaning to do it, but like somebody comes into your world of stand up and can just do it, like Scott said, and he did. You, you, yeah. you have these, like, come on, can he really? And then you see him right. do stuff, and you're like, holy crap, everything we took years to just be able to do, he's got the right. confidence just to knock it out. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Pretty awesome. Yeah, he's like, I, I in the sports world now. He's like Steve Harvey, you know, like where Steve Harvey has like half the jobs in entertainment, and I feel like <laughs> in sports, he's the Steve Harvey of sports now. But there's a great energy he puts out, and everything is authentic that comes out of his mouth. He's he's that's why certain guys that he doesn't like that are talented, they're talented. But he, if you're not authentic, he doesn't buy in. And he's the next wave, I think, because where broadcasters were always the, you know, the, the very corporate feeling sort of, even though Madden was, uh, you know, the guy who would talk about all the weird stuff, it, you felt like they were just playing by most of the rules. And then if they created their own rules, they would just play by those. Even Madden circling turkeys and stuff like that. Gruden's doing his stuff. But when he comes on, you just, you don't, it, you don't know what's going to happen on television, I, and that's why I think he's so good for it. And it, oh, I turned on I turned on Maction on what Wednesdays or Thursdays, whenever the hell those games come on, all the time in college football season, because that would be when he would go on with Matt Berry uh, for broadcast. And it's just because he brings a different dynamic that you don't typically see, like you said, in broadcast. And I mean, yeah, I really hope they give him a shot with the big time gig. The showman. Well, the cool thing is that those those moments when somebody will take the rules and say, all right, I see what you're doing here, and then rewrite them inside the box of rules. He's bringing his own rules to the party without stomping on the party. That's, yeah. the, that's the great thing about those, those types of people rewrite how the thing we've always known gets redone without just coming in and stepping on it or saying it's stupid or whatever. He's still in the box. He's still in the parameters, but what he's doing inside of it is so much better than everybody else because he's not following the typical... I don't even know if he knows it. It's just because it's natural. Been doing it in jean shorts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody wants that. He's, he's, and that's how he was. I mean, that's how he was nine years ago when I met him. I mean, yeah. it, it, I we used to go on local sports shows that we had mutual friends on, and that's how I met him. And I'm like, well, he's not like everybody else. Yeah. And I think that's a big reason why a lot of guys that don't do it, like Aaron Rodgers was on his show yesterday was on for like 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and was the most on, I learned more about Aaron Rodgers in that 30 minutes than I've ever learned from anything else because even though Aaron Rodgers was this cool, snarky guy that he is, um, you were getting a feel for him. And and Pat, 
it was just such a, it was like two guys in a locker room talking without using locker room language, you know, but uh, that was my bad Trump again. I <laughs> And Aaron Rodgers is going to have 25 minutes for Danica Patrick. So yeah. yeah, but he did yesterday. It was really good. Yeah. All right, guys. There's my alarm. Dogs are going nuts. All right. Great job, everybody.